Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And I want to talk this morning about promises that are made to us. But they aren't promises from God. Promises of God are unbreakable and they are wonderful and they're a great blessing to us and we could spend months and months and months and wouldn't even scratch the surfaces and all the promises that God makes to us. But I want to talk this morning about the promises that sin makes. The promises that sin makes. And the reason that I believe that's important, I believe the, the Lord has led us to this this morning, is because sin is so deceptive in the way that it tries to lure us in. And it is so appealing to us at times that we need to understand why it's such a fraud. Now, we don't talk about sin probably enough because I think in our Christian culture we've gotten a little nervous and a little PC that we can't talk about sin. We just have to encourage everybody and, and try to make everybody feel good. But the Bible talks a lot about sin, so we need to talk about sin. We need to study sin because sin impacts our lives in so many ways. The devil's a liar. Let's state that up front. The devil's a liar, and since man has been on earth, he has been working very, very hard to try to fool us and to try to trap us and try to enslave us to sin. And unfortunately, mankind has been a very willing participant in that. We have gravitated toward it too much, and, and in many ways, it's easy to reject what is so logical, the truth of God. It's so easy somehow for us to reject the amazing grace of God and to buy into these false promises that the enemy makes. And that really leads to very tragic results. And that leads to very life-altering results. In fact, if you ask any pastor what is the most difficult part of their job, what is the most discouraging part of their job, they will not say preparing sermons, they will not say counseling. They will not say dealing with conflict in the church. They won't say planning services or getting people to serve. What they will tell you is the worst thing about the ministry is seeing people fall back in their walk. The worst thing about the ministry is seeing people live in a worldly way that causes dishonor to the Lord and brings harm to their relationships and their reputation and to the church. I'd much rather prepare 20 sermons than see marriages broken by sin. I'd much rather struggle to find nursery workers than to see damage that, that is done to your witness by loving alcohol or by saying impure things or by being cold to the Lord. Now that seems illogical for somebody that knows God's mercy firsthand, but that's how deceptive and dishonest sin is. That's how tricky it is and how misleading it is that it somehow convinces us that living for ourselves is better than living for the Lord. Now, we have one big advantage in this fight, and that is that the enemy has not changed his playbook for 6,000 years. He has not changed his tactic. He hasn't changed his methods. What we're going to look at in a moment in Genesis chapter 3 is exactly what he's doing and saying now. He hasn't changed because he hasn't had to change. So if we can learn to recognize the signs of sin, and if we can understand that sin makes promises that will never be fulfilled, it will become far easier for us to resist it. 
especially if we're living under the power and control of the Holy Spirit. If we can see what sin does and the promises that sin makes and the fact that they don't ever come through, we will not want any part of it. So let's look at the text. We're going to look first this morning at the, some of the false promises of sin. I want to encourage you to take some notes this morning because I think this will be very helpful and I think it will be very practical for us. So, so if you don't usually take some notes, take some notes this morning. We're going to look at the promises of sin and then we're going to look at some of its costs. But let's start Genesis chapter 3, passage that should be very familiar to us. We're going to read 1 to 13 this morning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God always gets right to the point. The man said, The woman who you gave me, to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. I was powerless. It was unbelievable because she's so cute. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, it's important to see from the outset that Eve knew the truth. And the devil comes and he says, hey, what's going on with this one tree? When he starts to tempt her in verse 1, Notice in the text that she was able to clearly state the specific instructions that the Lord had given them. There's no confusion at this point. There's no equivocation whatsoever. You are not to eat of the tree in the center of the garden or you will die. Now, the problem is she knows God's word. Clearly, you can see it right here in the text. She knows God's word, but she was easily swayed from it. Because she wasn't fully committed to it without compromise, and neither was Adam. Let me tell you, this is where a lot of people live spiritually. They know the Word of God. They're clear on what God has told us. They know the consequences for disobeying, but they're still willing to be drawn in by the appeal of sin. Maybe that describes you this morning. Maybe that's the position you're in. And you're, you're living kind of a, you're trying to balance this life of knowing what God says and trying to do the right things. But at the same time, you're still willing to participate in sin. And that's causing conflict and pain and destruction in your life. I pray this morning that the Spirit of God will speak deeply into your heart. I pray that you will see this morning that sin is a liar. That the promises of sin are fraudulent and the promises of God are true and wonderful. So let's look back at the text and let's 
find some of the false promises of sin. There are six of them I want to detail very quickly this morning, and they're all here in verses 4 to 6. Okay, you ready to write? The first promise that sin makes is the lie that God's word is not reliable. Sin says that God's word is not reliable. Now, before the enemy tries to convince Eve about the sweetness of the fruit or the benefits of disobedience, the first attack that he makes right here in verse 4 is to deny and to devalue what God has said. Notice how brash the enemy is. Notice how unashamed and unapologetic he is about contradicting the word of God. He directly denies it and he leaves Eve and he leaves us to make a decision about whether we're going to believe the Lord or not. Everything in life comes back to faith. And it is never tested more than in how we handle the word of God. If the Bible is subjective to you, if the Bible's full of helpful suggestions, but it's open to negotiation as determined by what you want, then you don't really have faith. You don't really want to obey the Word of God. If you think you can pick and choose what to obey, especially as culture tells us what it thinks is right, what culture promotes as its values, if, if you think you can take the parts of the Bible that you want to take, but, but the parts that culture denies, well, we're going to have to negotiate those then you're not really, and please hear my heart this morning, I'm not being accusatory, I'm trying to detail this. You're not really taking the word of God seriously, and you're certainly not going to live by it. If you think that you can ignore it, not be held accountable to it, that, that, that God doesn't really mean what he says, then you're yielding to the same disbelief that the Eve shows here. Because as soon as the enemy comes along and says, you know what, God's nerd word is not reliable. What he said, you, you, you don't understand what he really means. As soon as she believes that, instead of believing God, she falls. Now the problem with this first lie, that God's word is not reliable, is that it will always be proven untrue. It will always be proven untrue. Psalm 89 says, the word of God stands firm in heaven. Isaiah 40 says, the word of God stands forever. And Jesus himself said, heaven and earth are going to disappear, but my word lasts forever. This is not some book. This is not some piece of literature that, that's like every other piece of literature. This is the holy spoken word of God, and it is for our lives. And the enemy can try to convince us all he wants that it's not true, but he will never successfully refute the word of God. The Lord always proves his power and his authority, and he will always prove the foolishness of denial. And the devil can try to deny God's word, but it details what happens to him. So he's going to fight it. And the first lie we will always hear with sin is God's word is not true. God's word is not reliable. Now that leads into the second lie in verse 5. The second lie is the false promise that sin doesn't have consequences. Look at what he tells Eve. You surely will not die. And not only is he saying God is not honest, but he's also saying there's no penalty associated with sin. We can do whatever we want and nothing will happen. Now anybody with common sense who watches life at all knows that's a lie. 
There is always a consequence to sin. When we disobey what is right, there is a penalty. Now, if you don't believe that, try driving 100 miles an hour back to your house. And when the police officer kindly pulls you over and walks up to your car and says, license and reservation, say, there's no consequence to sin. And then he'll show you that there's a consequence to sin by handing you a ticket for about $400 and saying, I need your license because you don't have it anymore. There is always a consequence to sin. Now, the popular opinion now is, well, there shouldn't be any restrictions on behavior. And that sounds very cool and very edgy and very postmodern. But if somebody ever says that to you, that there should be any restrictions on behavior, say, do you have any locks on your house? Oh, oh you do? Okay, well, tonight, I tell you what, not only unlock your doors, but just leave them wide open. And keep your keys in the ignition of your car in the driveway because there shouldn't be any restriction from doing what you want. See, the lie falls apart so quickly. It's so ridiculous that it's amazing anybody buys it. But the enemy's been unusually effective in blinding our minds and convincing people that that's correct. Notice back in the text how it works on Eve. Notice how the sentence that he gives to Eve is kind of both defiant and almost funny. You won't die. Come on. You really believe God when he said that? You really believe God is going to hold you accountable? He wasn't serious. He just knows that you can't find out the real truth, that if you eat of that fruit, you'll be just like him. That's why he's hiding it from you. God's word's not reliable. Sin doesn't have any consequences. That leads to the third false, third false promise. Sin's no big deal. Sin's no big deal. You, you, you won't feel any shame or any guilt because God doesn't have a right to hold you accountable. And besides, sin isn't really the problem it's made out to be. In fact, you look back at verse 5. He says, you'll actually be more enlightened. You'll have a greater awareness of yourself. You'll have a better understanding of life. It'll make you autonomous. The benefits far outweigh the bad feelings that you may have about disobeying God. And besides, you know what? He'll get over it. He's gracious and all that. It's interesting how much this narrative has affected the church. Especially over the last 25 years as we have overemphasized the grace of God and become almost scared to talk about sin. Let me, let me give you how one pastor describes it. I'm going to read a little bit here, so just stick with me. Listen well. Within the last few years, there's come a decadence of the concept of sin in the minds of multitudes of people. The sense of condemnation before God has weakened, and the feeling of guilt has faded out. Along with this has come the persuasion that sin's not so bad after all, and that entirely too much has been made of it. There are those to whom this is a welcome sign. They say that the idea of sin is a relic of ignorance. There is, according to them, no longer any feeling of guilt because we've learned that there is no guilt. It's not with these groups alone that the idea of sin's fading out, but among people in our churches, the feeling of guilt, even about those things which they'll readily admit are grossly evil, is lacking. There's no shame, no pungent sense of wrong on their part. Get to the next part. A light attitude with reference to sin has marked every period of general backsliding. 
When sin is comfortable in the church, the power of its testimony is weakened, and the world ceases to respect its character or to fear the judgment which it proclaims. No greater calamity can befall the body of Christ than she should look upon sin with her gates with complacency. Sinners are convicted when the church is convicted, and to the same degree, careless, ungodly living and the lack of scriptural warning have deadened the consciousness of sin among many Christians until it no longer looks hateful and ugly as the Word of God says it is. That was written by a Mississippi preacher named Enos Kinchlow Cox. And by the way, it was written in the 1930s, 80 years ago. And if it was true then, I can't imagine how much more true it is today. See, the enemy starts by promising that sin doesn't have a cost. And then he switches gears and he tells us about all the supposed positives in sin. Look back at verse 5. Because lie number four is that sin gives you power. Sin gives you power. Look at the deceptive promise that will never be true. You will be like God. This has been a persuasive and pervasive lie that man has desired since the garden. You don't need God because you are God. So why subject yourself to him? Why trust Jesus when you can run your own life? Even Job, who was a godly man, fell into this line of thinking when he was in crisis and he started to wonder why God was allowing such pain and why he should submit to a God that will allow him to endure such trial. This is a parallel to the often stated question, how can a loving God allow good people to suffer? And the Lord answers Job, if you want to read it, read it this week, chapters 38 to 41 of the book of Job. And he, he gives them a very powerful but a very loving and gracious set of questions. He says, Job, where were you when the heavens were formed? Where were you when the doors of the sea were shut? And when was the last time you caused the dawn to break? When was the last time you caused the skies to rain? And are you able to bind the chains of the Pleiades and loosen the cords of Orion? Can you make it thunder? Can you make it lightning? And Job comes to the understanding after God continues this way for four chapters. And he comes to the conclusion, I am most definitely not God. Society needs to understand. The church needs to understand. We are not God. There's only one God. And we have bought the lie in our culture that, that we're in control somehow. Listen, if we don't serve the Lord, we serve the devil. We are never on our own. We're never autonomous. We never have say of our lives. If you don't serve the Lord, you're serving the devil. So you're under, you're under somebody's control. It's just a matter of who. But sin keeps deceiving and saying you'll be stronger and better and wiser and happier like we're some kind of spiritual $6 million man. You just follow sin, you'll be so much better off. But this is false promise number five. False promise number five is sin will bring more fulfillment and contentment than the Lord. Look at verse 6. The tree was a delight to her eyes and was desirable to make one wise. How she knew that from fruits beyond me. 
But Eve had bought into the narrative that instead of being grateful for the blessing and abundance that God had given them, that God had shortchanged them, that if they could just have this one tree, listen now, if they could just have that one tree, that it would supersede everything else that God had done for them, that that would be the real satisfaction. Listen, this is how the devil taunts us. If you could just have that one more thing, oh, boy, if you could just have that. I know it's not what you're supposed to have. I know it's going to seem like it's going to ruin your life, but if you could just have that one thing, you'd be so fulfilled. Oh, you got that? You need something else. It's like a child walking through Toys R Us with a $1,000 gift card. Oh, oh, if I could have that. Oh, I could have that? Okay. Oh, look at that. Man. Oh, how about that? We're never going to be satisfied by sin. It's never going to be enough. We're going to say, oh, okay. Now I've got it. Now I'm good. The devil's always going to say, oh, there's one more tree. What What about that one? This fits in with the sixth lie. Lie five is sin will bring fulfillment and contentment from the, more contentment than the Lord. Lie six is the pleasures of sin will last. Pleasures of sin don't last. They're temporary. And, of course, Eve and Adam quickly realized that the false promises of five and six were an illusion because once they heard the Lord coming to meet them, as he always did, they hid in shame. But wait a second. I thought there was no shame in sin. If that's true, then why are they hiding? Why is most sin done in secret? Think about this. Why is most sin done in secret? And this is becoming more open because culture is getting less afraid of God. But, but why, is, why is sin done in secret? Why, why are there duplicitous lives? Why are there, there crimes committed in the dark? Why is sexual sin behind closed doors? If there's no guilt, if there's no shame in sin, then why isn't it just wide out in the open? Adam and Eve hide. When they hear the presence of the Lord, they hide because they know they're wrong, and then they realize very quickly that there is a cost for those decisions which they were promised wouldn't hold any consequences. Not only does the temporary pleasure of the fruit fade as soon as it's swallowed, but sin never provides lasting pleasure. And now they've disobeyed God, who is holy and who is gracious and who is loving And now they face discipline. Sin always has a cost. We may not want to believe that. We may not experience the cost now. We may think we get away with it. But listen, the cost will always come calling. I can't count the number of people who have destroyed their lives, destroyed their marriages, destroyed their families, destroyed their careers, destroyed their reputations because they thought that spiritual truth didn't apply to them. I've had people sit in my office over the years with defiance and glee and say, I've never been happier than I am right now. And I'll say, well, you're just straight in sin and you're damaging everything around you. And they say, I've never been happier. And I say, let me tell you where this is headed. Let me tell you what five years down the road looks like. And I'm almost always right. And I don't say that with any pride or any joy. I say that because I've seen it so many times. 
It shouldn't take anything more than Jesus going to the cross with your sin and my sin to understand that there is a price and a penalty for sin. And that alone should convince us to abandon it. But we're hard to convince. Because when our selfishness gets involved, we can't think straight. So look at what the Lord does. He helps us out. He lays it out very clearly for us. After everybody's blamed everybody else, Eve blames uh, Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Serpent doesn't have anybody to blame because he knows he's at fault. After all that happens, look at verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go. Dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity, conflict between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He'll bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, verse 16, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband. That's a statement not of uh, lust or, or sexual desire. That's a statement of power and control. Your desire will be for your husband but he'll rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you will not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles will grow for you, and you'll eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You say, well, that's really harsh of God. Listen, God could have just killed them and sent them straight to hell. But he had a plan. From this moment when the first Adam sinned, he already envisioned the second Adam that was going to come and release us from sin. God is gracious even in his discipline. But he says there is discipline. One of the great costs of sin is that our relationships are fractured. It starts with our relationship with the Lord, which is irretrievably broken with no hope of reconciliation, no, no chance of us getting out of it until God intervenes. Till God offers cleansing and forgiveness and restoration through Christ. But, but otherwise, we're hopeless. Now, that's only possible because God is gracious more than we can comprehend. But when we sin, it not only affects our relationship with him, but it affects our personal relationships. And in our personal relationships, we don't always experience the same level of mercy that we do with God. All sin will ultimately be exposed. If you have a secret life, if you have secret relationships, if you have secret deceptions, if you have secret vices in your life that you think you're getting away with and you're sitting there thinking, well, nobody's caught me yet. I want to tell you right now, and I am no prophet, I want to tell you right now, they are going to come out into the open. And when they do, the damage will be incalculable. The effect on those who love us when we're in sin is profound. And while we can't erase what we've done, when we are caught, all we can do is get on our face before the Lord God Almighty and say, God, I repent. I want to change. I've got to repent to those I have hurt. And I beg you for your mercy. And if that heart change is sincere, God will start to work. 
the fact that our personal relationships take so long to heal shows us how awesome the grace of God is, that he would not only fully forgive us, but that he would erase any record of our sin, he would never bring it back up, and he would make us holy is a gift we can't appreciate often enough. How many know that God's grace is worthy of complete devotion? Complete devotion. How could we ever abuse the grace of God? It's time for us to stop messing around, for us to stop looking for loopholes morally, and to stop playing with righteousness. It is time for a full commitment of our lives. And that will become easier for us when we recognize the other costs of sin. Look at two more things and we'll pray. Look at verses 10 to 13. Sin produces an attitude of pride and defiance instead of brokenness. Notice in verse 10 how many times Adam uses the word I. When the Lord says, where are you? Start in verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. All of a sudden, Adam's talking a lot about himself because he's in shame. He's caught. But he's trying to justify himself. Well, Lord, I heard you coming, and I, and I didn't have any clothes on, and I didn't really want to be embarrassed in front of you, so, so I hid myself. All he can do is think about himself. And you know what? Sin does that. It makes us arrogant. It makes us think God can't question us and that he actually should affirm us for how absolutely awesome we are. Take a little time this week. We won't turn to it now. But, but look, look at Luke 18. It's where the Pharisee and the publican are both praying in the temple. And the Pharisees brag, oh, Lord, I thank you for who I am. Oh, I'm so great. Man, oh, man, oh, man, you are so lucky to have me. I'm awesome. I give and I serve and, and I'm a big studly guy. And, and man, you must just absolutely be so proud of me. And I'm so glad I'm not that guy. And the tax collector's back in the corner on his face. And all he can say is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you want to know how much sin is governing your life, do a humility self-assessment. Take an honest look at your life and ask yourself, am I really humble? Not, yeah, I'm humble. Are you really humble? Are you really spiritually broken? Are you really yielded to the Lord? And then after you come up with the answers to that, to make sure you're right, ask three spiritually mature people that you can trust who you know will be honest with you to analyze your self-assessment. Actually, instead of that, Ask them to do an independent self-assessment for you. See how they match up. Are we proud and defiant? Or are we broken before God? Because sin produces pride. Look at one more cost, verses 16 to 18. There's no payoff from sin. There's only pain. Listen to E.K. Cox again. It's important to note that the proponents of the idea, I think this is a brilliant argument, by the way. It's important to note that the proponents of the idea of rejecting God and any limitations on man's will and desire have not outstripped the rest of us and developed into prodigies 
nor have they worked out a superior civilization. Instead, their method has contributed largely to the present reign of crime and decay of society. Do you get his point? If sin was so much better, then why isn't the world happy? Why isn't the world progressed? Why isn't the world totally fulfilled? Instead, what do we see? We see war, terrorism, fear, crime, poverty, suicide, divorce, alcohol and drug abuse, depression, and an overwhelming sense of discouragement. How many know that you will never experience those things when you're walking with the Lord? The, the, the mess of the world this morning is not God's fault. It's man's fault. It's because of sin. And yet, if sin's such a wonderful thing, and if the promises of Genesis 3 are so true, then why isn't man a more perfect society? Man's worse because of sin. But when you're covered by the grace of God, and you're full of the power of the Spirit, and you know his blessing as a child of God, you never want to believe the false promises of sin. You only want to live under the Lord's promises, which are yea and amen. They're sure, they're certain, and they bring more peace and more contentment than we can ever imagine. And we will only experience that when we start dealing with sin. The only way you will see personal growth and revival in your life, the only way I will see personal growth and revival in my life, the only way the church, this church, will see revival among it, the only way the American church and the worldwide church will see revival, the only way culture will be different is if we start dealing with sin. The only way your marriage will be restored, the only way your family will be healed, the only way your ministry will be more effective is if you start dealing with sin. All great spiritual awakenings have begun with a renewed consciousness of sin. Starts with confession. One pastor said, we can never say my God until we humbly say my guilt. And once enough people have repented where the Holy Spirit says, now we've got something. Now I can work because there's a people that is calling on me and right with me and ready to be used, then conviction will start to reveal itself within our culture. But if they think we can go out and entertain people and save them, if we think we can go out and be right up in their face and save them, if we think we can take any strategic approach to save people, listen now, without first dealing with our sin, we are spinning our wheels. We're wasting our time. So it starts with us. That's why I believe at the start of this year, we need to respond to the truth that the Spirit's given us this morning to admit once and for all that sin is a liar, that it makes promises it can't deliver, and to declare that our only desire is to serve Jesus Christ.